Hello. Hello, Mark Patrick. Hello there. How are you? I'm very well indeed. This is my uh, techie monk. <laughs> What's his name? Yeah. Justin. Justin. Hello, Thanks Justin. so much, Justin, Justin, for your help in this. Yeah. Can you hear them? Uh, no, they're thanking you. Oh, anyway. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I leave it to it. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Paper Tuesdays with Michael Dwyer and Mark Halpin. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm I'm great. Now we're in the we're in great company this evening. We surely are. We've had some uh, superb guests. Uh, we've had hurlers, we've had boxers, and now we've a monk, brother Mark Patrick Ad- Hederman, former abbot of uh, Glenstall Abbey That's and um, head monk. Really, I, I'm sure a lot of your uh, colleagues revere your your position within the uh, monastery. There, you're an author, and you have spoken out strongly in favour of. Uh, our need for arts, education, and uh, many, many things that that are important to our culture here. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Mark, for joining us uh, this evening. It's We're recording at 9.15 uh, or so. Uh, you've probably had your evening prayer, and you'll probably have, you'll be up early again for prayer again. So it's uh, it's just brilliant to have you. Thanks for making the time to for this interview. Not at all. It's great, as you can imagine. It's huge excitement for me, uh, rather than Coco and <laughs> going to bed. <laughs> you have uh, the thought of worldwide entertainment from two very, very extraordinary compares, you see. <laughs> so that makes me feel extremely important. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I suppose we'll get to it then. And we have this segment, Mark, it's called Parish of the Week because we were going to call the podcast the Parish Newsletter. And then we discovered that there was already a podcast called the Parish Newsletter. And that's where we had to look for the name Paper Tuesdays. But anyway, Parish of the Week this week goes to St. John of God Parish in Somerset in the US because they're having a Malasada sale and dinner and more there this month. They're having Malasadas. They can be bought for $1.50 each or a half dozen. A half dozen even is $9. And then they're also having a dinner to go later in the month uh, for $20. Individuals can order a baked scrod. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Or barbecue chicken dinner complete with Portuguese soup and sweet bread for dessert. So with such innovative methods of feeding the parish there, Fair play to them and St. John of God Parish in Somerset. You have won the Parish of the Week title this week. What did you make of this, Mark? Uh, could you just do the maths for me again at the start of that article? The start of the article? Yeah. Um, so we had 150 each or a half dozen is $9. So that's 6 for $9. Multiply 150 by 6. Is that 9 so they're not giving you a deal, they're just doing the maths for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's clever marketing. <laughs> Has Glenstall Abbey, uh, you sell candles and make books. Have you gone into food yet? Well, we have the most wonderful chef here. Oh, ooh. In fact, we have two people. The person who's in charge of our food uh, it could be Jamie Oliver. So uh, we're really very, very... Uh, and then we had the, the last man who was in charge of our food. His brother uh, was the actor John Hurt. Right. Have you heard of him? So, no, I haven't heard of him, no. You never heard of no. him? No. Did you never see 
film uh, The Field. Oh. No. no I found The Field. Come on. I haven't seen uh, The Field, though. Yeah, well, oh, he was the bird no, in The Field. Heard. So he was in The Field. He was the, he was, he was the bird, uh, <laughs> along with Richard Harris. No way. All right. So, yes. Jenny, right. Yeah, oh, he's very famous. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. And he was the person who was in charge of our food. So it's a big business to be in charge of food in a monastery. You, you have the, the ace of spades in your hand. <laughs> Everybody, you know, that, that's what gets you votes if you're going for average. <laughs> While we're on that, you monks eat in silence. Why, why is that, Mark? It's very simple. If you're sitting beside the same person every morning for breakfast and you turn to them and say, lovely weather we're having today, and they say, well, not quite as good as we had in 1940, the conversation goes downwards from there, you see. So it's this, we are uh, using the rule of St. Benedict, which was written 1500 years ago and has been in use in monasteries. So they have a huge... uh, store of common sense and it's absolutely essential for people who are living as we are in very close quarters knowing each other all the time to have enormous periods of silence because there is nothing more irritating than the really joyful person who comes to breakfast and <laughs> gives you commentaries on cornflake pots and whatever you see so uh you just have to cut all that out. Right. Okay. On that as well, how many uh, monks are in the monastery? Uh, about, I say, 30. Now, they're not all there, you see. They take a vow of stability, which means that they're meant to be in the same place for the whole of their lives, as if a ball and chain was round your leg. But... In these days, people's ball and chain can be fitted in the pocket and off you go on the Ryanair flight. To uh, So a lot of them are traveling and some of them are studying. So they wouldn't all be there at the same time. But that's the general number that's uh, around about 30. A lot of people have said that um, it's remarkable how in monasteries everyone gets on so well. And, you know, maybe you will say now that that's not the case. And, you know, so-and-so is a bit of a so-and-so. <laughs> but um, in, in most monasteries... Oh, well, the truth is, yeah, the fact is that guests who come have a kind of very, very uh, exaggerated view about how wonderful everybody is. And... <laughs> But the truth is, I'll tell you, this is a good story because there's an older monk here and he has a friend who comes to visit him from England and both of them are deaf. So they sit in the middle of the courtyard and roar at one another so everybody around hears the conversation. And on one occasion, the conversation goes... How many members of this community are there? And the our guy says, there are 30 members of this community. 28 of them are certifiably insane. <laughs> and they're all trying to find a school the other two are. <laughs> so that gives you a kind of an idea. There's a, nobody chooses the people who come 
they all come for different reasons and they all come supposedly searching for God. Now that you put X the unknown around God at that point because everybody's view about God is different. So there can be very great differences between the members of the community about their theology or about their politics, etc. So the most of the time you don't talk about politics or theology. <laughs> you just stick to the weather and various other they're all talking about these days. You know? Thankfully, local newspapers are much more straightforward. And uh, in this week's Roscommon Herald, uh, they covered the story of the new initiative uh, of 7,500 trees being planted across the county by school children. This is a brilliant initiative, I have to say, being launched with uh, the, the county council and Sean Mulrine, the developer with Ballymore. And they're even linking in with the children's charity Variety Ireland. So it's a great idea to, um, you know, get the primary school children thinking about um, their their planet's future and sparking their curiosity. So a simple story and a simple initiative. So um, I, I thought that was pretty good. Mark, what did you make of it? Oh, well, I'm all about biodiversity, as we know, Michael. I loved it. And it's great to see child labour making a resurgence on the podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, it's great to have trees planted. I don't think it matters much who plants them because they won't be there to see. Well, small hands can get in there, down further into the ground. Yeah, I thought it was, we, we saw in the paper today that we better watch out because in the year 2050, there's going to be a severe change of the weather in Ireland. But, but unfortunately for people like myself who are 76, you're saying, oh, <laughs> well, we hope you have a nice holiday. I wish you were there. <laughs> so, yeah. That's very good. <laughs> well, our next story comes from the Fermanagh Herald. Uh, this is about the tenor, Andrew Irwin, and he's linked up with the county council there, and they're going around to 14 care homes in urban and rural parts of Fermanagh, and uh, he's singing the driving force, uh, he, he, he's been a driving force on the singing scene and now he's having a sing-along with residents. So what did you make of this, Mark? Uh, again, i just like to go back to the first line of the article, could you? Yeah, elderly people everywhere are well known for singing along to their favourite tunes. Are they? <laughs> you can't just say something to make it true. I don't think that's true. <laughs> when I think of elderly people, I don't think, oh, they love singing along to their favourite songs. Yeah, I suppose I do. You made the point though that in COVID, really, we can't. We have to watch our singing, really, uh, Mark. Isn't that you're true? You're not supposed to sing at all. You're not meant to sing at all because your your spittle and all kinds of other uh, emanations which come with the tune uh, could be causing disease to spread. I remember actually the last time um, we had the foot and mouth disease, and there was meant to be a famous tenor who was going to sing in Kylemore Abbey, in the new church they had just built there. And so just before the event, we all got this little note saying that owing to foot and mouth disease, the tenor would not be able to sing. So we thought this was hilarious because <laughs> it wasn't he who had foot and mouth disease, but it was because of the... Uh, 
a disease that we wouldn't be able to go to the actual chapel. So I think in the same way here, uh, we're wires are crossing slightly. You know, we have all these regulations about what we're going to do, and in old people are not meant to be singing at all. They're not even allowed to sing at mass. May I ask a direct question then? Are you not chanting? We, of course, are chanting. Uh That's not singing, you see. That's a very different (laughs) exercise. (laughs) Yeah. Good to know. Thanks for clearing that up. (laughs) And I assure you that nobody, old or young, are chanting along. You know, it it doesn't go with the karaoke. And our final story this week comes from the, um, I think it's the Limerick leader, and it's about a car that got stuck on a pedestrian bridge. We'll put the photo up on our Instagram. It's in Killaloo. Killaloo can be quite busy uh, on a Sunday afternoon with many people uh, trying to get across the bridge there. And, uh, well, one person thought that the pedestrian bridge might offer an avenue to get to the other side. Well, no, it hasn't. And Clare County Council have decided to install another no parking sign to make sure that no other driver gets stuck on this very narrow bridge. Good to know, Mark. Good, good to advice. know. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. You, have you, you, that's not far from uh, Glenstall Abbey, is it? Maybe half an hour spin? It's one of the most beautiful places that you can go to. Really? You, you have a lot of yes. beauty on your own doorstep as well, I, I, I take it. Well, our place was built as a paradise by the person who built the castle. That's, his name was Barrington. They were landlords. And so they built this castle, mostly because he actually came with Oliver Cromwell originally, and they felt that wasn't a very good way to endear themselves to the locality. So this huge castle, Norman castle, which gave the impression that they came with the Normans, which was more acceptable. Right. That's no King John. Ireland was given to King John uh, as he was called Lackland. So John, who had no... uh, Richard the Lionhearted owned England and France, and John, the younger brother, had nothing. So they gave him Ireland as a little (laughs) kind of milksop. But when he came to visit, he came to Limerick, and the, the natives in Limerick were so unwelcoming that he had to build a huge castle called King John's Castle. And so the Barringtons, who would be the people who built our castle, Glenstall, they went to America coast with a man who was a friend of theirs called Douglas. You know, Douglas Fur is called after him. And they brought back a boatload of magnificent trees and shrubs, which are planted all around our grounds. So we have got the tallest Californian redwood this side of the Atlantic on our grounds. Wow. So you have to come and visit oh. and wear a mask. <laughs> and so the uh, fact is that uh, his daughter was uh, anxious to drive a motor car. And the parents said that under no circumstances would a lady of her standing, they were... Uh, Lord Barrington and his wife, that never would a woman of her standing be seen behind the wheel of a motor car. <laughs> that if she wanted to uh, get 
a seminar for, in a finishing school in Paris for how to get into and get out of a motor car. There'd be one seminar for each one, getting in and getting out, that they would pay for that, but not to drive. So anyway, she had a friend of hers who was a British Army major who was in Tipperary. All the British troops were in Tipperary. You know, Long Way Tipperary is not an Irish song. It's an English soldier song. They were all billeted there. So the man who was a major in the British Army, he had a car. So she was getting secret driving lessons from him. And the IRA had targeted him and they ambushed the car and she was driving. So they thought that if she was wearing goggles and like yourselves, actually, she looked exactly like you look now driving the car in those days. And they thought it was him. So she was shot. Then he got out of the car and shot two of them, and then they shot him. So then, obviously, the uh, family left, went to England and Scotland, where they had other properties, and the place went fallow. And it was offered to the government, and we have a letter saying uh, from Cosgrave that it would be too far from Dublin and too expensive to keep. So thank you for the offer, but we don't want it. And eventually then it was given to Belgian monks. So that's how we came here in 1927. Just in a few minutes. We've gone from King John to the IRA. That's yeah, impressive. And Henry VIII, then you see, had <laughs> suppressed all the monasteries here. Oh, yeah. So we're the first Benedictine-made community since the uh, suppression of the monasteries. Oh. Uh, they put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> oh. I, who's next? <laughs> <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> That's very good. Do you mind if I ask Mark a question? Actually, well, of course, uh, yeah. how old were you when you decided to become a monk? Well, I was at school here. Uh, I went to school in Glenstall Abbey, and the school the the school was really um, started in order to produce young monks, like uh, in a tobacco house. <laughs> so if you were a very quiet and well-behaved child, you would be surrounded by the monks who said, now we think you'd be a very good person. You look very well. We look well in the habit. So when you were young, uh, at those, that time, of course, everybody was going to be a priest. They were all, it was the thing. But, uh, you know, when you're young, you kind of, half of you is splattered to think, they're mentioning you in high places in heaven. And the other half of you is horrified. You say, well, they're not going to turn out like one of those creeps. <laughs> uh, it, it's the one, five people in the class I was in uh, joined the monastery. And I'm the only one that was left. The others all left. One left after two weeks. So anyway, that was the idea that the, the, the people who were a little bit more obstreperous and athletic, would go to the missions. And they went to the Columban Fathers in Navan. So two of my class went to become uh, uh, priests in Navan. And one of them was killed, Rufus Halley. He was murdered in the Philippines a few years ago. And so in those days, it was not at all unusual. I mean, when you think of all the people, John Hume was go, was in going to Manute, Brian Friel was, you know, the, everybody in those days 
uh, had taught that they might have a vocation. So I uh, left and went to university, and then I came back after that. And so that was, I'm there. I, I, I'm in the monastery now over 50 years. Yeah, oh. it's impressive. You, you looking well, back on your... I mean, Sorry? It's impressive. On, on the contrary, it's the most luxurious life you could possibly have. And, <laughs> so, and no, no problems about... Uh, earning your living, or there's always food on the table, etc. So it's not people who are sympathizing or saying, Oh my God, how did you ever do that? Uh, would want to kind of think to themselves, Well, as one woman said to me, she said, You're all going to get an awful shock when you go to heaven and find you were there already. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I find it impressive because, uh, say, when you first went in, you've always had a, a, a fondness and you've developed uh, your own writing style and your own voice as such. Like, you, you write about when you were thinking about leaving the monastery and your mother sent you that poem and, you know, a really striking poem. And you've had, a, I, I imagine you've enjoyed poetry throughout those 50 years and the word uh, as a as a unit itself. Yes. But that's the great advantage of it. I would never have had the kind of education that I got if I hadn't joined the monastery. I, I would have been, first of all, I would have had to earn my living. Secondly, I might have got married and I'd have children. So I've had uh, every opportunity to develop my own uh, intellect and to explore whatever I wanted to for and and you get no um, nobody's holding you back. And I was sent to Paris for four years, for instance. It just it was at the time in 1968 with the uh, revolution of all the students. And it was oh, the yes. most exciting time to be in Paris at that time. So uh, and so, in other words, you everything possible was developed for me in my life. Uh, so that I could have, it's a great privilege, but then you're expected to use that privilege to work out what on earth is it that we're doing here? Why are we on this planet? Because other people don't have the time or the interest, maybe. So I've had a wonderful time. Uh, and then you see, I thought when I was uh, 29 that I had all the answers to all, all the questions that anybody was going to have. In, I mean, all the stuff about existential, I knew all about all that. So I said, I'll write a book and then it will be quite clear and then they'll all know and they won't bother. So I spent 16 years trying to get a book published. And everybody said, well, nobody on this planet with the right mind would read or publish the kind of rubbish that you were writing. See? So... That's I mean, you get uh, very depressing letters from editors all over the world saying, no, sorry, no, no, not that. And then one summer, I gave a talk in Ennis. There was a conference in Ennis run by Harry Bowen. It was called, Are We Forgetting Something? And I gave a talk on that. And after the talk, a woman who ran Veritas, which was 
the publisher of the Catholic Church and said, if you write that out as a book, I'll publish it. So in six weeks, I wrote the talk out as a book. And it became a bestseller. Now, a bestseller in Ireland means that they ring up Easton's on a Saturday morning and say, is there anything being sold down there? You know, you could sell four copies and they'd have a bestseller. In. <laughs> so, what was the name once, of that book? It was called Kissing the Dark. Oh, yeah. You said before you regret the title of that or something. Was because somebody thought it meant Kissing in the Dark. Is <laughs> it became a bestseller but it, just, it actually doesn't matter once you have a bestseller to your name you can publish anything about cactuses or about any subject you want and they take it because they say oh this guy's going to sell so I have been writing and I had after 16 years I had so much material that I was able to produce a book once every two or three years. Yeah. Now that I was 50, uh, it was in 1999 was the year I published the first book. And that means now for the last 20 years, I have published about 15 books. Because you see, once it's, once it, once you get that title that you're a bestseller, uh, then anything you say, oh, well, I've got a great book now here about cactus plants, you see. Uh, <laughs> you did a book uh, there. We actually, our last podcast, we focused a lot on education and your yeah. book, um, The Boy in the Bubble, uh, yes, focuses on education and personal development. Obviously, oh, you well have... Up, you're well up on it. Well... Obviously, there are so many things we can discuss and so much of it is continues to be relevant. But I suppose actually one thing that strikes me, you go into detail about the role of the student or the pupil and the role of the teacher. How do you think discipline comes into this? Because when we were talking about this last week, it felt like sometimes a, a bad use of discipline or an incorrect, and hmm, how would you say, an, an inappropriate uh, miscommunication or something can really determine a person's a child's relationship with um, their educator and their school and their own sense of education so you were a headmaster how did you use discipline in a way that was encouraging rather than discouraging well i think discipline is not necessary at all if the person is interested in what they're doing Right. I mean, when, uh, for instance, uh, computer studies came in, there was absolutely no problem whatsoever about discipline in the classroom because people were absolutely fascinated by it. And the trouble was that the children had been with computers since the age of five, and they were being taught by somebody who had never seen a computer until they were 40. So they were bored to tears by the teacher who insisted on, no, no, you can't just open the computer now and do what I tell you. <laughs> and I remember seeing uh, a little clip of a four-year-old boy who was in a rage because he was trying to explain to his grandmother and he was 
practically in tears, saying, Nana, are you so stupid that you don't even know how to press the button at the bottom of the screen? You see, that four-year-old child was teaching his grandmother about what he knew, which was the computer. And that's the way education should be. I mean, somebody was educating Einstein, and Einstein knew far more than the teacher did. So it really, education has to be uh, something that we do together. And yeah. if the person, if the child knows more than you do, especially it happens in classes where you have somebody who's actually French or speaks perfect French and you're teaching them, well, then that child knows more than you do about the subject. And now they may not know about grammar, but then, so in other words, you have to do it as a, as a, a team but they will teach them how to pronounce and you can teach the grammar. So, I mean, there's no problem about discipline as long as the children know that you're with them and hoping to make them move forward. Now, the trouble is in our school here, the largest number of people in the class are 15. And my view is that small is beautiful where education is concerned and there's absolutely no reason in the world why a small population like Ireland can't have 15 people in every class. Yeah. And yeah. actually the COVID is making this much more possible. Absolutely. Because there has to be the social distancing. See, I mean, COVID did what I was trying to do for 50 years, which is spread the leaving certificate. And in one year, the whole thing was abandoned. And, and it took that, didn't I, it? Like, it, you even go into, in, you say in the book that, you know, in the primary school, it's not too bad. Like, it came up in the 1970s and, you know, we're fairly happy with it. But the whole way we um, determine yeah. in a points game how people can get through, yes, it's anonymous, but is it really uh, rewarding for a person as they enter adulthood? But not only that, but it's only a very tiny percentage of people are able to do that kind of learning. Mm. There's a whole lot of intelligences that are left out completely out of it. And the points race was the worst thing that was ever invented. And especially nowadays, because the brains, our brains are different. Because from the earliest times, children today have an iPad, and they have all kinds of stimulus, which means that their brain is different from the one I have. And because the brain is plastic and it moves because of what happens to you, the stimulus that comes towards you. So several of those children are being um, dubbed dyslexic or they've got ADHD because they can't sit down on a chair and listen to the absolute nonsense that the teacher is talking about. So they just aren't able to take it that much. So we have to actually recognize that it, we have to learn how to teach children today and listen to them, listen to what they're saying, because they're the future. And we're saying, oh, no, no, we tell them. And everything is based on memory. You have to learn off all this garbage for the leaving certificate. And then you should sit down with a pen and write, which nobody does nowadays, for three hours, vomiting out what you have learned off by heart from some person that you... And, and the people correcting that 
are told exactly how many marks to give if, if you have learned it all properly. I mean, it's just pathetic. That must be music to your ears, Mark. Would you like? You'd have to agree with that. I'd say. Yeah, it's sort of what I said last week. Yeah, well, isn't it? it's not. It's a strange way to measure somebody's intelligence by their memory, mm. learning off things that they don't really care about, and that's you get this number then, and that's how smart you are. You're capable of doing this because you remembered some. Absolutely, yeah, and I mean. But with Google now, nobody needs to remember anything because no. you see from there. It's just pathetic, and and not only that, but every you said you said that last week. Mm. Everybody said it ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> everybody knows about it, but we're all too lazy. It took COVID to shove it out, you know. Yeah. And I mean, COVID has had several great advantages as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it got rid of the legal certificate, it got rid of the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> it got rid of the of peace. <laughs> but on that, when lockdown was announced, was, did a little bit of you smile? Were you like, oh, see what you think of it now? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, actually... You know, I mean, the real truth about lockdown is that it has been a huge advantage to many people, but it's absolutely, see, it depends on your temperament as to whether it means that you go into a straitjacket or whether you go into a hermitage, where you go back down into yourself and find something you know this is and that's why i think it's very very hard on some people and i I, that's why i'm apologetic and embarrassed to say that for me anyway the experience has been a very very positive one but other people i know their whole livelihood and their prospects you know i know people who for instance small things like people learn to talk the whole Part in a musical, and they were just about to put on the musical, and it was all cancelled. You know, people's lives were destroyed by this. I know that, but it's we can't do anything about it. That's the situation we're in. So it's a question of making the most of this, and that's something which I think can be very positive if people take it in the right way. Mark, you've like you went to school when you were 10 because you decided to ask your mother who was uh, American that you know you were ready oh, for school okay. uh, hear all about me <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> this is like being uh, in Russia or somewhere everything you know and I think that's the great disadvantage of the of the technology today is that all the things that we did when we were very young remain secret whereas now you do anything somebody's taking a photograph and somebody's taking a picture of you and there you're for the rest of your life you're standing in the nude on top of a hill somewhere (laughs) (laughs) yes so yes that is true my my mother was American yeah well it's not that it's a big deal as such but it's more that I think it's led to you looking at the world a bit differently and that's why the open and the pearl was such a, a an astonishing but well not astonishing i just found it interesting you don't see anything else written like quite like it and that was about um love and 
that whole sexuality side of it. Uh, did people, and then you wrote about tarot cards, did people come up yeah. to you and go, what are North Ayan about now? Or like, did you meet any uh, resistance to that? Yes, there was somebody outside our gate in the monastery with a placard saying, this is no longer a monastery. They are dealing in the devil's pack. So there was a heap of uh, emails. Because some people find the tarot cards, the devil's work. You know, they wouldn't have them in the house. They have a fear of them. And there was Patsy McGarry wrote uh, huge article in the Irish Times and it was headed the mad monk from the Midwest. That was <laughs> Jamie Mac. So, right. It's not you know people are perfectly entitled to have whatever view they wish, but that's the great advantage to being uh, free. I, I have no uh, obligations to anybody um, even universities now can't afford to say certain things because they're funded by these huge pharmaceutical companies who are on the actual campus and who will dictate in a certain way what they're going to research and what they're not going to say. And it, well, it happens everywhere, whereas we are perfectly free. Now, of course, the monks here are also to be taken into consideration because they uh, find me to be uh, far too outspoken and would say, oh, why can't you keep your head below the parapet? You know, we don't want <laughs> too many shots coming over the, uh, the castle walls. <laughs> but certainly I've had a huge uh, privilege of being able to say what I think myself without being afraid to do that or without being censured in any way. I mean, some, most people are amazed that I haven't been um, silenced by Rome, for instance. That, that would be what they say would have happened if I was living in an earlier time. But at the moment, anyway, I, and I wouldn't, it, it, it wouldn't affect me at all, one way or the other. Yeah, but people are crying out for, well, not crying out, but there's an appetite or what you were saying made sense. That's what I think. Like what? And that's I, what you say, my dear man. But <laughs> I can tell you, most other people, including my sister, will say, I do not understand one word of what you're saying. And, <laughs> and another woman said to me, I read two pages and then I took down a dictionary and then I gave up. So... <laughs> This is the problem. I, I find it perfectly clear, and I'm trying to be extremely uh, populist about this, and I'm saying, look, I want, because the tarot cards, I'm saying that's the dummy's guide to the unconscious. But I say you've got to get in touch with your unconscious. And people say, well, why we don't? I don't have an unconscious. <laughs> I say, well, how do you get in touch with all, yeah, well, your dreams. Oh, I never dream. I never dream. Well, then art, oh, oh art, and then I never look at art, I don't like art. See, so if they don't have any access to the unconscious, I'm saying well, at least something like the tarot cards is a way of accessing the unconscious, even in spite of yourself. Now, there are people who are using it 
to make sums of money. I mean, if you see advertisements on television for anything, you know that somebody's making a fortune here because they wouldn't be able to have the advertisements on unless they could pay. So it is used by people um, to get money, but I'm saying it can be used by as a way like the I Ching and various other methods. Because getting in touch with the unconscious is, is the really important thing for all of us. And that's not done in education or in any way um, that seems to me to be uh, useful for people. And this feeds into the idea of the mystery that you write about, living yeah. the mystery uh, about uh, a book. You're, you're so well up on my work that I am wondering whether or not I know what you're talking about here. <laughs> so, so I wrote uh, 20 years ago that I'm the basis notion of what I said, you see. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested to hear, because I don't hear many people say to me, oh, about, I'd say there were about four people in Ireland who read that book um, living the mystery <laughs> and people communicated with me in a way that actually I said yeah these people really are, are interested because other people think oh we loved your book on living the mystery <laughs> so you say oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's fine well I picked it up thinking that it was going to be, you know, why religion proves that religion still exists, or no, why science shows that religion is still the way, and you just, you don't go that way at all, no, you say that there's something in the middle, something just parked right in the middle that between religion and science, and it's the mystery. And that's, no one can really explain it. We can't put it in words properly, but that's what you kind of see in the world. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, that's very true. Well, the biggest criticism of the book was that I didn't say what is between science and religion. That the title says, what lies between science and religion? And there's a map almost, and they're complaining that I, they thought I was going to provide a kind of map which would show you here's religion and here's science, and this in between is the map or the compass or the guide. But actually, I didn't write the subtitle to the book. That was put in by the person who produced the book. But I interpret it as saying... What lies are told between science and religion? In other words, instead of what lies in terms of what oh. is between, what lies are we telling? What lies between science and religion can be read as saying uh, they're both telling lies about each other. What, what, if you were to discuss it more broadly, what are... Th- what is the mystery? What, 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 uh... Well, I think uh, what you said originally about myself, that not going to school until I was nine meant that I was able to use my own imagination and live the mystery of the world around me without being told by a teacher, this is the way you're going to 
measure everything and this is the way you're, you're going to live. And you know, every child is like that. I'm saying that the mystery is everywhere and children know it from childhood and we don't have to say, oh, this is it, this is it, this is it. The world is a mystery and every flower, that, every uh, bud, every thing about nature, we, for heaven's sake, during the COVID period, we had the opportunity. We had five cygnets, uh, little swans, on, on our lake. All of these things are what we ignore or we don't even think about when we're not in isolation. But everything uh, outside the window and inside the window is a mystery if we see it that way. And that's uh, just what I'm saying. Mark, you have you normally play a game, but this time it's a, a more serious title. Questions I would... Questions I would like to ask a monk. So... <laughs> Mark, I, I, this is more of a, a general thing. I sat down, I put myself in lockdown before this podcast in a room for half an hour and I came up with some questions I'd like to ask a monk if you wouldn't mind answering them for me. Oh, I have no problem at all if I know the answer. Okay. And if I don't okay. know the answer, then the monastic uh, cost is silence. Okay. So if you hear a big silence, okay. you know that I don't know the answer. <laughs> Uh, question number one, if the TV show Father Ted has taught us anything, it's that bishops love sci-fi. So do monks love sci-fi? Well, first of all, I've never seen Father Ted. <laughs> I'm ashamed of certain things, but I have never actually seen the program. Uh, I'd say no matter what, my, first of all, my brother used to write sci-fi. So that put me off it for life. <laughs> but there are... Other people, you know, every single thing that you could mention, there's one person or two in the monastery that are into it. And it's quite amazing how varied, and, and there are some very talented people here. There's a lot of people interested in music and a lot of people interested in nature. So I don't think you could name anything. Now, sci-fi, I don't know... Really, I know a lot about the monks here, but I can't actually um, identify anybody. Although some of the films now, they would be interested in, in sci-fi films. But apart from that, I, I can't say that it's a big uh, uh, sort of item on our agenda here. Yeah, I know our listeners can't really see this, but we're over Skype, and you can see, I can see a lot of Xbox games over your shoulder there. Are, what are, are they, they yours? What are they? Xbox, what's that mean? <laughs> They're not yours then. It's a <laughs> sort of like PlayStation gaming console oh, type no, I thing. I have none of those. Those are CDs behind me. <laughs> C oh, okay. CDs. Oh, they are actually there. Yeah, never mind. And not only that. But we have in the monastery 1,000 or more DVDs and a machine for showing them. <laughs> and everybody else, everybody else says, give it up. You know, they're getting them from Netflix or whatever it is. So they're giving us all their surplus, saying we, can't, we don't know what to do with these. So we have art movies and various other things that are very difficult to get anyway. Uh, the second question, are monks allowed to drink fizzy drinks? <laughs> uh, <laughs> only if they're very ill. <laughs> Flat seven up. 
yeah. Seven up, yes, a lot of them. But uh, otherwise, we prefer uh, wine or uh, certainly and good wine. You know, they they had a they had a survey in the European Union of how long should you keep in your cellar the wine that you're serving to the brothers. And in Germany, they said, well, especially if it's white wine, you keep it for six years in the cellar before you serve it. But the French said, no, not at all. Nine years, especially red wine. But the Irish person said, well, if we haven't had drunk in the car before we came back to the supermarket, we don't have anywhere to put it for either two years or one year. And it's a kind of similar situation here. We get whatever we're given. So if you're thinking of sending us a little box of Chateau Neuf du Pape, for instance, you see, that's one of the favorites because of the mention of the Pope on the on the label. Would you rather take a vow of silence for the rest of your life or a vow against silence for the rest of your life? Yeah, well, if you're giving me that choice, it's against. Against. So you can never stop yeah. talking. Oh yeah, no, no. I always, always see that. In other words, that I'd always be talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think it's not. You know, um, it's not a great choice you're offering there. Really. <laughs> but I, I'd prefer to uh, be able to talk anyway than never able to talk. Mm. Yeah. But I don't think these are uh, realistic options, and so I'm very happy to give you either one or the other. You know. I, yeah, I don't. That's fair enough. Yeah, I don't want to be silent for the rest of my life, anyway, as you have already experienced. This <laughs> um, have you ever performed an exorcism? No, no, that's quite no. But there, I uh, know a person who <laughs> wanted to perform one on me uh, <laughs> after I. Uh, written the book on the tarot cards and he, you know, was very, very seriously worried about my um, soul and my kind of demons or whatever it is. But anyway, you know, I, I do know an exorcist very well and he's also a psychotherapist. So, you know, it's a serious business in certain places, but I've never performed one. See, I wasn't a priest at all until um, I was elected abbot, and then I, I was forced to be a priest um, because you, the Vatican said that I couldn't be abbot of Lenstall Abbey, such a prestigious place in Maroo County Limerick, without being ordained. And so it was a question of either being ordained or not accepting um, to be abbot, and I believed that I was elected, and that that was the will of the Holy Spirit. So I was ordained a month later, which means that the church can fast track if they want to very quickly. Mm -hmm. Most people have to spend seven years, whereas I was one month, and then I was ordained. That was it. Is there kind of a rivalry so I, I between... Much, in other words, not much time for exorcisms during all that. No. <laughs> Is there a sort of a rivalry between priests and monks? No. No, I, I was a brother for most of my life. But you see, originally it was that the brothers were the working class people. 
they were doing all the work. And the fathers, or those who were ordained, were living a life of luxury and liturgy. And the others were out in the cows and serving. But that's all changed, as you can imagine, in the 20th century. And um, now there's absolutely no difference. And it's up to the person themselves, really, whether they want to pursue the vocation to be a priest or whether they just want to serve God as a monk. And many do. I don't know whether it's half now. I don't think it's half now. I'd say it's about a third of them are brothers and uh, the others are all ordained. Mm. Do, you pl- do you play any sports down there? Or is there a gym or is that yes, a monkey thing to do? Yes, we have a gym. My sport was tennis and I and some of the other monks were horrified at the amount of tennis that I played. <laughs> and I, I pick it up now because I'm... Uh, fashioned over age and uh, if I don't die of COVID I might die of a heart attack on the tennis court although I couldn't imagine a more uh, pleasant way of going to eternity <laughs> but it does leave a lot of difficulty for those who have to pick you up from the court and try and explain to the public that uh, the way of your demise was you know sort of um, it's a bit infra dig as it were for a Benedictine to be found dead on a tennis court uh the last question then i suppose mark is is there any hope for us well i can see the two of you are really interested in joining the monastery so <laughs> I'm very, I, I think this is uh, what's happening here uh, this is what i call uh, a covid way of seducing two very eligible young people I, I did say before that if it wasn't for this podcast it was a seminary <laughs> yeah I see okay <laughs> okay well that well now you see you have to uh, there are horses for courses and <laughs> I think I prefer the monk I prefer the yes uniform. I disagree with you it's a much more luxurious life absolutely no responsibilities four minutes <laughs> day and uh beautiful grounds on which to either play tennis or wander and see the uh, beautiful trees that were brought from America in 1927. It must be a big tree, is it? The redwood, because isn't that the biggest tree in the world? Yeah, Mm. it is very big and it's actually like the Twin Towers. It got struck by lightning and the top was knocked off it and we gather now that it's not anymore tallest in this part this half is it we're talking about this side of the atlantic now okay we're not talking about the ones in america you know where they're triple the size <laughs> like the you know uh, the american who returned from america to the farm in ireland and he was explaining to the farmer that his farm in america that you could get on that tractor and drive for two days and you wouldn't get to the whole of the land that I own. And our farmer said, well, we had a tractor like that one time too. (laughs) (laughs) We normally, early year, have um, this 
short burst of what we call a flash flood and it's a, a friend of ours and he goes on a rant and you know this is the type of lad now mark um if you were sat beside him at breakfast you'd be asked sorry no silent or no talking but you'd be pointed <laughs> to that sign this is the flash yeah. flood so we apologize for his strength of uh, the veracity of his statement but here is a flash flood for you mark and uh, you might drink it up fellas i have something on my mind this week but i need to tell you a little story behind why this is on my mind first so here is the little story so sunday morning i woke up with uh, a bit of a hangover you could say and I was like, right, the only way I'm going to solve this is with grease and bread. So I went to the, to the local deli to get a breakfast roll and a bottle of Fizzy Good Good, or Lucasade, as I like to call it. Um, and on my breakfast roll, I love black pudding. I just love black pudding full stop, but I couldn't find any. There's no black pudding in the deli, so I got all my stuff in that petrol station. I left it down and I went to another one in search of black pudding for a breakfast roll black pudding so this went on and on and eventually I got her all with black pudding on her grand happy as a pig and shit happy as a dog with two mickeys but I want to know why in the name of God is black pudding so hard to get on a deli that's what I want to know it's an absolute thundering disgrace that white pudding outnumbers black pudding on the deli white pudding it's it's just no good there's no Bump off it, no flavour, no pizzazz. Black pudding has that bit of pizzazz about it. We need more black pudding in the delis, and I want answers why we can't get black pudding. And I want them now. Now, what do you think, black or white pudding, Mark? I'm absolutely in favour of black pudding and Clonakilty black pudding. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I was yeah. In Northern Ireland, uh, in Bushmills, which is one of the most, I suppose, um, pro-unity between England and Northern Ireland, and they were serving an Ulster fry. And I looked at the menu, and what was there on the menu? A clonakilty black <laughs> So that's what's going to bring us together. <laughs> have uh, our horoscope uh, do, do you believe in the horoscopes mark well it depends don't. i mean depends. anything can be used for the purposes of the lord ah, but I, I find the horoscopes a bit uh shall we say entertaining at times when i read oh well, oh, well then well here's yours mark i, I what, what's your star sign what i start what's your star gemini Gemini, okay. Breathe in and breathe out. Pluto is charging into Sagittarius. Who knows what lies ahead for you, Brother Mark, the Gemini. Your natural tendency to avoid the limelight may remain, but when Saturn plunges into retrograde, the light shines on all your good deeds. May you bask in its glory and remember that clarity will soon come when the fifth quadrant of Venus meets your stars in the coming days. Yes, I think that has happened just now. <laughs> all my attempts to avoid publicity have been dashed 
<laughs> You've become a paper Tuesdays uh, under a guess. <laughs> Definitely. And now, as they say, you're on the worldwide web. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now we have our final game, you'd be glad to hear. And it's the best 30 seconds of your life. And we promise you that. And what? Um, are you going to do the time? I'll, I'll do, do the time and you do the ticket mark. I'll do yeah. the score, okay. Now, this is going to be a tough one. We're, we're setting you the challenge. Robbie, our sound producer, who's been patiently uh, watching the levels throughout this uh, recording, he uh, came up with the idea of uh, getting you to answer or offer as many well, names... Well, I tell you, he, he's included in the offer. He can come too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. Oh, it's a good man. I'll see you soon. <laughs> yeah. There's Rob. Okay, good. That's good. He's our Justin. You had Justin doing yes, the Yes, yes. Oh, exactly. Um, so it all kinds to make a word. It does. It does. So for thirty seconds, Mark, you if you could offer us as many names of saints as you can, that would be terrific. That's the aim of the game, and you've eighteen to beat. Are you ready? Peter Andrew James, John Philip Bartholomew, Matthew Thomas, James Gilles and his brother Jude, uh, Philomena, Padre Pio, and Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Pope John Paul II, and Pope uh, Benedict XVI will soon be joining them, and St. Patrick, of course, couldn't leave him out, St. Brendan, and St. Jude, who's the patron saint of Lost Causes, and Mark, my own patron Five, saint. Four, three, two, oh, and, and, and Justine. Good. Yeah. Oh, he just got Justine just in time. <laughs> yes. That was incredible. You'd be a great rapper, Mark. Um, well, I really do not agree with that. It's what I learned about <laughs> beaten into me where all the names of the apostles. You had to learn all the catechism off by heart. Oh, right. Okay. So, you see, we Maybe were they... educated in our day. You lot know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You've taken your sword to the top of the leaderboard. Maybe they knew when they were drilling that catechism into you, Mark, that you would one day win the best 30 seconds of your life. 20 is your score. Mark, well oh, done. Thank you. <laughs> I hope the person, the third person, is also clapping. He is. He is. I am. I am. Very good. <laughs> There'll be some chance because the trinity. Down in yeah, we have to have the whole trinity. Holy <laughs> <laughs> trinity! <laughs> the paper chooses trinity. My goodness. Beautiful. Mark, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for being so generous with your time and um, keep chanting, not singing and stay safe in this time of COVID and I hope you've enjoyed this Paper Tuesdays podcast experience. I have really enjoyed taking the vow that Mark asked me to take about talking all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mark. (laughs) 